السلام عليكم ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهدي الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له ونشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد فان خير حديث كتاب الله وخير هذه هدي محمد صلى الله عليه وعلى اله وسلم وشر الامور محدثاتها وكل محدثه بدعه وكل بدعه ضلاله وكل ضلاله في النار Today's talk on the rights of Allah, Haqqullah, and our duty towards him will be given by Shaykh Wajdi Al-Ghazawi, Imam of King Fahd, um, Fahd Mosque, uh, Masjid in Mecca. The Shaykh was born, raised, and educated in Mecca, and has a bachelor's degree in Aqidah from Umar Qura University in Mecca. Inshallah, you came here to listen to the Shaykh, so I'll hand you over to the Shaykh. إن الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونستهديه ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فهو المهتد ومن يضلل فلن تجد له وليا مرشدا وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن سيدنا ونبينا وإمامنا وقدوتنا محمدا عبد الله ورسوله وصفيه من خلقه وخليله يا أيها الذين آمنوا اتقوا الله حق تقاته ولا تموتن إلا وأنتم مسلمون يا أيها الناس اتقوا ربكم الذي خلقكم من نفس واحدة وخلق منها زوجها وبث منهما رجالا كثيرا ونساء واتقوا الله الذي تساءلون به والأرحام إن الله كان عليكم رقيبا يا أيها الذين آمنوا اتقوا الله وقولوا قولا سديدا يصلح لكم أعمالكم ويغفر لكم ذنوبكم ومن يطع الله ورسوله فقد فاز فوزا عظيما أما بعد فإن أصدق الكلام كلام الله تبارك وتعالى وخير الهدى هدى نبينا محمد صلى الله عليه وآله وسلم وشر الأمور محدثاتها وكل محدثة بدعة وكل بدعة ضلالة وكل ضلالة في النار ثم أما بعد As you all know brothers and sisters we are here today to elaborate on a very important topic to elaborate on the right of the Creator, the right of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala over His creatures, over all of us, over mankind. The right of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala over His creatures was explained by the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And I'm going to use a narration that was narrated by Mu'adh ibn Jabal radiallahu anha and collected by Al-Bukhari wa Muslim one of the most authentic narrations, when Mu'adh said, I was riding on a donkey behind the messenger of Allah sallallahu when the Prophet said, Ya Mu'adh, Mu'adh ibn Jabal said, I will 
quote the hadith in Arabic. Kuntu radif al-Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam ala himarin faqala ya mu'adh atadri ma haqqullahi ala al-ibad qultu ay mu'adh Allahu wa rasuluhu a'lam qala an ya'buduhu wa la yushriku bihi shay'a qala atadri ma haqqul ibadi ala Allah qala mu'adh Allahu wa rasuluhu a'lam qala sallallahu alayhi wa sallam حق العباد على الله ألا يعذبهم يعني إنهم فعلوا ذلك. معاذ said the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم asked me and he said, Oh Muad, do you know the right of Allah over His servants? Do you know the right of Allah over His servants? Muad replied and said, Allah and His Messenger know best. The Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم said. The right of Allah over His servants is that they should worship Him and do not associate partners with Him. The Prophet ﷺ asked Mu'adh another question and he said, Do you know what is the right of the servants over Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Mu'adh replied and said, Allah and His Messenger know best. The Prophet ﷺ answered and said, their right is that they Allah يعذبهم, that He will not punish them if they fulfill His right and worship Him and never associated partners with Him. This is a very important narration, brothers. And inshallah, we're going to elaborate and study this hadith in depth. So please concentrate and focus. We're going to share something that is very important, something which is very indispensable, something about our aqidah, about our faith. Before we start discussing the right of Allah over His servants, I would like to elaborate on this uh, methodology of the Prophet ﷺ, which is very important in seeking knowledge, which is very important in teaching and learning, which is the methodology of asking questions. Teaching people through asking questions. And that was the, uh, the way of the Prophet ﷺ. We have many examples in the sunnah in which the Prophet ﷺ used to uh, address a certain issue or clarify a certain misconception by asking a question. And this is a very useful and powerful way of teaching. And also it's very useful for the students and those who are seeking knowledge. And here he used the same methodology, the methodology of the Prophet ﷺ. He said, Oh Mu'adh, atadri ma haqqullahi al-ibad. Do you know the right of, the, of Allah over the servants? Over his servants, over al-ibad? So if the answer is no, then you are really testifying, you are admitting that you didn't know. Then you should learn. So this is like... Uh, a very good introduction to the lesson that the Prophet ﷺ was going to give Mu'ad. And let me give you just one example to show you or to emphasize on the importance of using sometimes this methodology in teaching. The Prophet ﷺ, for instance, he asked the messenger, the, the companions, one day he said, Whom do you consider to be the strongest of men? Good question. 
Well, the companions there replied, they said, Well, the one, the strongest of men, is the one who physically beats others. He's the strongest. And this is, you know, might come, this, this kind of understanding might come to us as well. Well, well, the strongest one is the one who beats others, the one who is physically strong. The Prophet ﷺ clarified this misconception. And he said, ﷺ, the strongest amongst you is not, the companion said in Arabic, the one who beats others. The Prophet ﷺ said, no. The strongest amongst you is the one الَّذِي يَمْلِكُ نَفْسَهُ عِنْدَ الْغَضَبِ The one who controls himself in anger. The one who when he's angry, he does not say or do anything that he would regret later. This is the strongest of men. So, initially before he asked this question, all of them, they thought that the strongest of men is the one who is physically strong. And this is what we think. No, the, the Prophet ﷺ clarified that misconception. That's a way, a method of teaching. And then he said, وسلم, the strongest amongst you is the one who really controls himself. When he gets very upset, he controls himself. This is the real strength. And this is the real power. He would not pronounce divorce and then be regretful. He would not exchange profanity or profane statements with others. He would not say something that would, he would later regret. This is the real power and this is the real strength and this is what shows the manhood of the individual. So, the Prophet ﷺ explained the right of Allah over his servants by asking Mu'ad a question. Do you know what the right of Allah over his servants is? And then Mu'ad replied, and that answer by Mu'ad was very common amongst the companions to say Allah and His Messenger know best. However, we hear some Muslims nowadays when they are asked a question or when they are supposed to you know, give their opinion or understanding on a particular issue, they would say Allah and His Messenger know best. Well, this statement to my understanding, is incorrect because they were allowed to say that the messenger, Allah and the messenger, know best when the Prophet ﷺ was alive. But when the Prophet, when he died, the Prophet is dead now. He doesn't know. Then we, we, when we refer to the knowledge of Allah, we should say, now Allah knows best. Only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. But the Prophet ﷺ, he doesn't know anything after his death. And the evidence for this that on the day of judgment, as you know, when he is around the pool, his pool, and the, 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 his ummah around him, there will be a group of his ummah who would come to drink, and they will be prevented. And when the Prophet ﷺ would inquire about the reason, why did you stop them from drinking? They are of my ummah. The answer will be, You do not know what they have introduced, what they have introduced to the religion, what they have innovated in the religion. So the Prophet ﷺ, he doesn't know. So, but at that time, he knows because they expect revelation to come to him and they expect Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to tell him. So it is okay to use this statement, Allah and His Messenger know best 
during the time of the Prophet ﷺ. But after the death of the Prophet ﷺ, we say, Allah knows best. This is the right of Allah. And we always inquire about our rights. This is something natural that people always try to find out about their rights. You know, uh, whether in business or even in their social life at home, you want to you always emphasize on your rights over your wife and your rights over your employer, etc. But it is time to know the rights of others over us. And the most important right is the right of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala over his servant. The Prophet ﷺ answered Mu'adh and he said, أَنْ يَعْبُدُوهُ وَلَا يُشْرِكُوا بِهِ شَيْئًا So the Prophet ﷺ combined between two important things, to worship Allah and not to associate partners with Allah. Worshiping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not enough, is not sufficient. Because if we look at the majority of the Muslims, unfortunately, it is very sad that we sometimes have to say the majority of Muslims when we refer to evil or misguidance. Because this is what's going on. The majority of the Muslims are involved in different forms of shirk. But at the same time, they worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's what Allah said. وَمَا يُؤْمِنُوا أَكْثَرُهُمْ بِاللَّهِ إِلَّا وَهُمْ مُشْرِكُونَ And most of them believe not in Allah without associating partners with Him. They would be praying and fasting and making hajj, but when they go back home, they would circumambulate the graves and they will invoke upon the so-called righteous dead people, etc. So they worship Allah, that's true. But at the same time, they commit the major and the most serious sin, which is shirk. So that's why the Prophet ﷺ said, أَنْ يَعْبُدُ اللَّهَ It's not enough to worship Allah alone, and you have to avoid worshiping others beside Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made very clear in the Qur'an, فَمَنْ يَكْفُرْ بِالطَّاغُوتِ وَيُؤْمِنْ بِاللَّهِ فَقَدْ اسْتَمْسَكَ بِالْعُرْوَةِ الْوُثْقَى لَمْ فِصَامَ لَهَا You have to, to have two things. You have to do two things. To disbelieve in taghut, which is any false object of worship, you have to disbelieve in that and believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is really what the first pillar of Islam is about is that you, you, first of all, la ilaha, you negate, you deny other deities or gods beside Allah, and then you affirm that Allah is the only one who's worthy of being worshipped. And this is something very important, brothers, because we have to uh, realize the importance of avoiding shirk, just like we realize the importance of worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because if you worship Allah, you pay all forms of worship to Allah alone, but you associate others with Him. As a matter of fact, you are invalidating all the good deeds that you have committed to please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And inshallah, we elaborate more on this uh, when we get to the meaning of ibadah. The meaning of ibadah now, 
So now we know that the right of Allah over us is to worship Him. So what is worship? We need to know what is worship and what is the reality of worship. The best definition for ibadah, they said, Al-ibadah ismun jami'un likulli ma yuhibbuhu Allahu wa yardah. Min al-aqwali wal-af'al. That ibadah is a comprehensive title for every action or saying that Allah loves and is pleased with. This is ibadah. Every action, every saying that you say or does or, or you do, anything that you do or say that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala loves is considered to be ibadah. And then one might ask a very good question and say, well, how do we know things that Allah loves? Is there any, I mean, what is the, the way, the, the, the proper way to find out about the things, the sayings and the deeds that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala love to see from us? Is it through the shiyukh or through dreams or through experience like many other uh, deviant groups believe our source of knowledge, brothers and sisters, and this is very important, our source of knowledge must and has to be a divine source, which is the Qur'an and the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. And whenever we see deviants or deviant groups or deviant individuals, we find that their source of information and that the source of knowledge is something completely different. For instance, let's uh, take the Sufis for instance. And Sufi, brothers... The most dangerous enemies of Islam are two sects. And, and you have to understand this principle very well. They are the most serious enemies because they are destroying Islam by the name of Islam. The Sufis and the Shia. They are the most dangerous enemies of Islam and they have damaged Islam and caused a great destruction to the, to, to the image of Islam everywhere in this planet because they claim that they are Muslims. The ibadah in the deen of Sufiya and one of the scholars, he said, I consider Sufism to be another religion. It is not a sect or a group. It is completely different religion. And of course, there are levels in Sufism, but when we critique any sect or any group, we critique the major principles and we critique those who uh, present and represent the sect or the group or the Sufis. Their source of information, their masdar al-talaqi for them and their viewpoint is first through the shiyukh. Because they claim that the shaykhs or the imams or the leaders, they know they are more knowledgeable than the messengers of Allah. That's why they insist that Al-Khadr was a pious man and he wasn't a messenger. And this is something key, very important. We believe that Al-Khadr, whose qissa, story was mentioned in Surah Al-Kahf, was a messenger. Allah revealed to him, وَمَا فَعَلْتُهُ عَنْ أَمْرِي I didn't do the three things that he has done, and all of you are familiar with, out of my, you know, thought or istihad or uh, desire. 
it was revealed to me by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the reason they insist on saying that Al-Khadr was a regular man, he wasn't a messenger to prove that, to prove or to substantiate the khurafa uh, or the falsehood that says that the regular sheikhs could be more knowledgeable than the prophets and messengers of Allah because Musa went and he sought knowledge from that regular man. Didn't Musa sit down with the man and he said, you know, I want you to teach me of the knowledge that Allah has given you? So they're using this to say that the source of knowledge and the source of information is our shiyukh. And this is how, this is the criteria by which we know the Sufis. People think that the Sufi is the one who uses dhikr beans or the one who, you know, uh, does certain things. Yes, these are actions of Sufism. But in order to know the Sufi and recognize the Sufi, there are certain criteria that you must be aware of. The first thing is, whenever you ask him a question, where did you get this from? You know, if I ask you, brother, why do you wear beard? You tell me, well, the Prophet ﷺ said so-and-so. He said, he ordered us in, in five different forms of commands in the Arabic language that you have to wear long beard, let it go. So, whenever we ask you for an evidence for whatever you do to bring you closer to Allah, you quote from the Qur'an or the Sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. But when you ask a Sufi, where did you get this from? He said, this is something very special given to me by the Shaykh so-and-so. So the source of information is Shaykh. And I'm not digressing, I'm, we're still defining al-ibadah. How do we know the things that Allah loves and wants from us? There is, do we know them through the shiyukh or through dreams? Sometimes, you know, that's the source of the shiyukh. When you ask the shaykh, where did you get this from? He said, we get it directly from Allah, either through a dream or they claim that they speak to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala directly and through experience. Like, for instance, if you see someone making dhikr, and he claims that this dhikr is good if you're sick or ill, or if you feel that uh, your relationship with your wife is being changed, etc. So they advise you to say, for instance, Allah 25,000 times or something like that. And when you ask him of his evidence, he will tell you it was used and it worked out. So we have experienced this. We have tried it and it worked out. So this is a source of information. So... We do not use these sources, brothers and sisters, to please Allah, to know what Allah wants from us. The only way to know the forms of ibadah and to know about the ibadat, because we have to worship Allah. لا يعبد الله إلا بما شرع That Allah is not to be worshipped except by which He legislated for us. Whatever Allah legislated for His people, that's how we should worship Him. So, how do we know al-aqwal, the sayings and the actions that Allah loves, is by going to divine sources, is by going to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in His book, and to the sunnah of the Prophet That's why Allah considered any source of legislation to be another God, false God beside Him. He said, أَمْ لَهُمْ or do they have partners? Do they have, or do they have taken partners beside Allah who have legislated for them things that Allah never permitted or never allowed? So he considered the so-called legislators 
as gods beside Allah. And he considered those who accept their legislation as people who have taken gods beside Allah. Because legislation is the exclusive right of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is something that every decent and intelligent man and woman must agree on. It's very simple. The one who invents the machine is the only one who has the right to write its manual, right? It's not fair for someone to invent, let's say a computer, put it together, and he knows the in and out of that instrument. And then we give the manual to someone else and ask him to write the manual, and he doesn't know anything about the nature of this device. This is not fair, this is unjust. So that's why Allah said, أَلَا لَهُ الْخَلْقُ وَالْأَمْرُ to him belongs creation, the creation, the creating of mankind and the universe and everything, and command. So if you all agree that he is the creator of heavens and earth, and you believe in that and you trust in that, then let the creator legislate for you. If he created everything, then let him legislate for you. And this is something very important, brothers, in the definition of ibadah, that, uh, uh, you know, we understand that this, the only source for ibadah, anything that would bring you closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, anything that would please Allah, must be taken either from Allah, from the Qur'an, His words revealed to the Prophet wasallam, or from the sunnah of the Prophet wasallam. And that's the meaning of the statement made by the scholars that al-ibadat tawqifiyya, that forms of worship must be based on divine sources or evidences from the Qur'an or the Sunnah. We cannot just come up with something and claim that this is worship. And if you ask any Muslim, why do you pray? Because Allah ordered us in the Qur'an. أَقِيمِ الصَّلَاةَ أَقِيمُ الصَّلَاةَ why do you make siyam? Ya ayuhaladina amanu, kutiba alaykum siyamu, kama kutiba aladina min kablikum. Why do you pray tarawih? Because the Prophet prayed in the first three nights. Why do you fast on the 10th of Ashura? Because the Prophet did it. So every form of worship, you ask us, where did you get this from? We'll tell you either Allah said so or the Prophet said so. But if you ask, for instance, the Shia, why do you do this? They will tell you Imam X or Y did such and such. You see the difference? So our source of information, our source of ibadah, how do we know that this particular form of worship is worship and is most pleasing to Allah is from Allah, from His book and the sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Min al-aqwali wal-a'mal. And this is something also very important. Please concentrate. This is, this is the misunderstanding of this principle was one of the first things that led people in the first generations astray. The misunderstanding of the reality of faith, of the reality of ibadah, that our faith, the reality of iman, is iman increases and decreases. That's first. Second, iman consists of three major pillars. 
And when we say three major pillars, two of them are not sufficient. One, of course, definitely not sufficient. You have to have, you have to fulfill and apply the three pillars of faith in order for your iman to be sound and accepted by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Iman is mere pronouncement and belief. You have to believe in your heart and then actions. And there are numerous evidences in the Qur'an and the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. And I know for a believer, it's enough to just quote one ayah and one hadith to realize the importance and to realize that our deen, our iman, our aqidah, our ibadah consists of three major pillars. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, إِنَّمَا الْمُؤْمِنُونَ الذين آمنوا بالله ورسوله ثم لم يرتابوا وجاهدوا بأموالهم وأنفسهم في سبيل الله أولئك هم المؤمنون حقا. So here Allah, this is a definition. إنما أداة توكيد وحصر. Like إنما المؤمنون. This is indeed the believers. The only believers are those who fulfill the following. Those who believed in Allah and His Messenger. How do you believe in Allah and His Messenger? You utter it, you pronounce it, you say, I believe in Allah, I bear witness that there is no God who is worthy of being worshipped except Allah, and, that, and I bear witness that Prophet Muhammad is His Messenger. That's how you believe. You have to make this mere pronouncement. And you have to believe in your hearts, in this strongly. And have no doubts in their hearts, but strive. And this is action now. They strive, they struggle with their properties and lives in the cause of Allah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it is those who are the truthful ones. Those who fulfill these three major pillars are the truthful ones. And as I mentioned, the misunderstanding of this principle was one of the early Mistakes that some Muslims committed and took him outside sometimes the fall of Islam and in most cases outside the, the straight path, the path of the people of Sunnah and Jama'ah, the people who are following the way of the Prophet and his companions. Those who claim that Iman is enough to just say La ilaha illallah, this belief, brothers, and sisters entails that all the hypocrites were believers. Because all of them, they used to say, La ilaha illallah. When they meet the believers, they say, we believe. And when they get back to the evil company, they say, they deny what they ever said. And they say, we were just mockers. We did not really mean what we said. So, we have an evidence here that just mere pronouncement is not enough, is not sufficient. Because all the hypocrites, they said it. And as a matter of fact, they added the third pillar, which is actions. They used to pray right, be, right behind the messenger of Allah Some of them fought with the Prophet were in the army of Muslims. But they lacked the second pillar, which is faith in their heart. They didn't have it. They never believe in their heart. And the second claim that says that faith in the heart is sufficient. You just have to have faith in your heart. Like the Christians say, believe in Jesus, you will be saved. 
that entails that Fir'aun is a believer. Because Allah told us in the Qur'an that Fir'aun strongly believed from his heart, sincerely believed that Musa was a messenger. وَجَحَدُوا بِهَا وَاسْتَيْقَنَتْهَا أَنفُسُهُمْ ظُلْمًا وَعُلُوًّا They have denied the signs that Musa brought to their attention. ظُلْمًا وَعُلُوًّا Out of arrogance, not out of oppression. They didn't want to accept the truth. But he knew Fir'aun for sure. And all of his people, when they saw that whatever Fir'aun presented wasn't sorcery, it was a real sign from Allah, they knew it. But they did not admit, they did not pronounce their faith, they did not declare their faith, nor did they act accordingly. But they had it in their hearts. And so is Iblis. Shaitan definitely believes in his heart that Allah is the creator, Allah is the only one. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is his creator, but he never adhered He never acted according to his faith. He never obeyed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when he ordered him to prostrate to Adam and uh, show his obedience. He refused to do that. So here we, we have the first claim, which is faith is enough. Uh, by just mere pronouncement, you say, La ilaha illallah, but you have no actions. And you have no real faith in your heart. And then the other claim that says, well, Iman is really just faith. If you have faith in the heart, and we proved that, that would include Fir'aun and Iblis and Shaitan to be amongst the believers. And this is something, this is a great blasphemy indeed. No one can say that. The third claim, those who combine the two, they said, well, faith is really... The, a combination of pronouncement and faith in the heart. And do you know what, what does this mean if we accept this principle? It means that we don't have to pray anymore. We don't have to fast anymore. We don't have to make hajj anymore. We don't have to do any kind of action. All the rituals will be you know, wiped out. We don't need to do anything, any kind of worship. Because they claim that all actions are the fruits of faith, of iman, the fruits of ibadah. Every form of ibadah, they say, and this is the madhab of ashairah, and it's very serious. They tell you, well, salah is the fruit of faith. And your honesty, your uh, good morals and character, all these actions are the fruit of faith, or the result of faith. Whenever you hear such a statement, this is deviation. No, we say it is part of faith. There's a big difference. It is not a result of faith. Because if we say it is the result of faith, it means that first we had faith in the heart, and then that's what's sufficient, and then that faith produces action. No, we say that you never had faith. When you have the three pillars fulfilled, then that's when you have faith. And this is something very important. The evidence for this from the Qur'an is very clear. When the Muslims used to pray toward Masjid Al-Aqsa, the first Qibla, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala answered the prayer of the Prophet ﷺ, 
and he transferred the Qibla to Kaaba, the companions, they wondered. They were really said, what about the prayers that we used to pray? Is it counted? Are the prayers that we used to pray counted now? You know, we changed the direction of the Qibla. What did Allah say? He revealed the ayah, وَمَا كَانَ اللَّهُ لِيُضِيعَ إِيمَانَكُمْ He didn't say, وَمَا كَانَ اللَّهُ لِيُضِيعَ صَلَاتَكُمْ He said, وَمَا كَانَ اللَّهُ لِيُضِيعَ إِيمَانَكُمْ Allah will never waste your iman, your faith. He didn't say your worship or your salah, because salah is iman, is faith, is ibadah. So we have to understand, brothers, that ibadah consists of actions, sayings, and, you know, uh, uh, faith in the heart. And this is a very important principle that we have to understand when we said that al-ibadah is munjami' likulli ma yuhibbuhu Allah wa yardah min al-aqwali wal-a'mal. And this is the reality of faith, and this is the reality of ibadah and tawheed. So the right, the Prophet ﷺ answered, he said, the right of Allah over his servants is that they should worship him. The ibadah is what is known as Tawheed al-Ibadah or Tawheed al-Uluhiyya. This is the most important type of Tawheed. And let me ask you a question. Who was the first messenger of Allah who was sent to his people to call them to believe in the existence of Allah. Who was the first messenger? Any other answer, please? They all said no. I want another answer. Any other? Adam or Noah? Adam. Those who say Adam, please raise your hands. Okay, and the rest, they say, no, right? Indeed, brothers and sisters, none of the messenger of Allah, none of the messengers of Allah, was ever sent to call the people to believe in the existence of Allah. This thing, this kind of belief doesn't need a messenger. All the mushrikeen, وَلَئِنْ سَأَلْتَهُمْ مَنْ خَلَقَ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ لَيَقُلُنَّ اللَّهِ If you ask them, who created heavens and earth, they would all say Allah. There's no need for a messenger to call the people, tell them that Allah is, exists. No, there's no need for that. They all know it. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that's why all of those who say we don't believe in God, or we don't believe in Allah, they're lying. Because Allah said, put them on a ship, on a little boat in the sea, and when they face death, they would raise their hands and say, oh Allah save us. Automatically. And two minutes ago, they said, we don't believe in Allah. But it's there. They, it's something natural to believe in the existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So there was no need really to send the messengers of Allah. But the belief, that kind of belief, should lead you to worship Him. And that's the ibadah. That's tawheed al-ibadah. And that's the purpose of creation. Allah made that belief natural to believe that He is the Creator. And he's the sustainer, and he's the provider of provision, and he's the all-knowing, the all. So that this kind of knowledge would lead you to worship him alone, and that's why he sent all the messengers. 
That's why he created heavens and earth. That's why he created everything. So he is to be worshipped. That's the purpose of creation. So that's the purpose of creation and that's the right of Allah over all of us. So brothers, the answer always should be, there is no messenger that was ever ever sent by Allah to prove to the people or to call the people to believe in the existence of Allah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent all the messengers, وَمَا أَرْسَلْنَا مِنْ قَبْلِكَ مِنْ رَسُولٍ إِلَّا نُوحِي إِلَيْهِ أَنَّهُ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا أَنَا فَعْبُدُونَ We haven't sent a messenger before you except that we reveal to him that there is no one who is worthy, there is no God who is worthy being worshipped except Allah. All the messengers of Allah. When they were sent, Allah would reveal this message to them that there is no one who is worthy being worshipped except Allah. So worship Allah alone. All the messengers. Oh my people, worship Allah. There is no God beside Him. There is no God other than Allah who is worthy of being worshipped because they are gods. God is any object of worship. People have worshipped different gods. And Allah said, They have taken gods beside Allah, but none of them is worthy of being worshipped. And this is a very important principle of ibadah that we must understand that this is the purpose of creation and this is the exclusive right of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala over His servants. And that's what the Prophet ﷺ really was doing, is just to call the people to worship Allah. And when Herakl, Heraclus, they call it? Huh? Heraclius, his name is funny, even in Arabic. Anyway, when he asked Abu Sufyan, you know, when Abu Sufyan uh, went to uh, persuade him to return the believers who... Yeah, this is a very important uh, uh, observation. The brother said, I, I said that uh, the signs were clear miracles from... Fir'aun, no, it's Musa, of course. This may be flipped over my tongue. Jazakallah khair. So when he asked him, he said, what is he calling you to? What is he saying, really? And that was, you know, a criteria that uh, Herakl was using to find out the honesty of the Prophet ﷺ if he was telling the truth or was lying or misleading the people. He said, what was he calling you to? And Heraqil and Abu Sufyan, even though he was a kafir at that time, he had to speak the truth. And he said, I never lied in my life. And if it wasn't that I was afraid that my people would say Abu Sufyan lied, I would have lied. That's why they had some morals, but they didn't do it for the sake of Allah. They do it for the sake of the Arab thing and to be known as an honest man, etc., so, there was a very critical question for him. He, has, he had to speak the truth. He said, well, he's calling us to worship Allah and not to associate partners with him. And that's the same thing, that, the, that, that was the advice of the Prophet ﷺ when he used to send the companions to call the people to Islam. When he sent, for instance, Mu'adh to Yemen. What did he, what, 
was the mission? What was the advice? What kind of agenda did Mu'adh have or take with him when he go to, when he went to Yemen? It was, فَلْيَكُنْ أَوَّلَ مَا تَدْعُوهُمْ إِلَيْهِ The first thing that you call them to is different narrations. أَنْ يُوَحِّدُ اللَّهِ يَعْبُدُ اللَّهِ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ يَقُولُ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا That should be the first thing that you call them to. And this is the ibadah. Every creature of Allah must understand the purpose of his existence in this world. It is to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And to understand and realize that Allah has a right on him, which is that he is to be worshipped alone subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that worship by itself is not sufficient. But we have to pay all forms sincerely to Allah alone and do not associate partners with others. This is something, brothers, is very simple. However, we find, unfortunately, some people who claim that they are Muslims, they believe that such a call or such principles divi- uh, um, <coughs> cause the... <coughs> separates the Muslims and cause division. And that's why they say, well... Let's delay Tawheed. Let's talk about the things that we agree on. Well, if we don't agree on Tawheed, then we cannot agree on anything else. If we do not agree that Allah is the only one who is worthy of being worshipped, and that during rough times we cannot call upon Ali, or upon the twelve, upon the twelve Imams, or upon alone the, uh, you know, the so-called pious sheikhs, the, the dead people in, in the graves, etc., if we do not agree in, in, in this basic, indispensable principle, we would never agree. And this is the strongest foundation that we must establish in our communities and in our da'wah. And if we agree on this, then anything else after that is minor. This is the most important thing. If we all agree on the principles of aqidah, the principles of tawheed, then any other differences are minor and must be dealt with as minor things and minor issues. However, we cannot tolerate anything in aqidah. Anyone who's calling people for tawassul or Sufism or finding other sources for knowledge other than the divine sources, we cannot tolerate this. And because we know that without having this solid foundation, all of our deeds will be scattered on the day of judgment. And listen to this ayah. It's very important, wallahi, and very meaningful. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, مَثَلُ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا بِرَبِّهِمْ مَثَلُ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا بِرَبِّهِمْ أَعْمَالُهُمْ كَرَمَادٍ اشْتَدَّتْ بِهِ الرِّيحُ فِي يَوْمٍ عَاصِفٍ لَا يَقْدِرُونَ مِمَّا كَسَبُوا عَلَى شَيْءٍ ذَلِكَ هُوَ الضَّلَالُ الْبَعِيدِ the parable, the example of those who have disbelieved in their Lord, in their Creator, in Allah. The parable of their good deeds is just like ashes. Karamadin, ishtadat That ashes was scattered by wind. Well, ashes really, you don't need wind to scatter ashes away. Right? You just need to blow real slow. And it will be scattered and disappeared, right? So this is a wind in a windy day. So you will, there is no way, no possible way to find any piece or any 
uh, even the smallest portion of that ashes anymore, they will disappear because they were blown away by a windy, by, by the wind in a windy day. So is the case of the good deeds of the kuffar and those who do not have sound faith on the day of judgment, their good deeds, good work, the charity, the morality, the honesty, everything good and beautiful they had on this life would not be counted simply because it was built on a false foundation which was built on shit. Running out of time? A couple minutes. I'm not even not. Okay, let me just very quickly. Uh, you know, I apologize. I can't elaborate more. Uh, I really didn't want brothers, you know, I didn't want to just go through the regular forms of worship and the regular forms. I wanted to give you some principles and some key words and key, you know, uh, principles that would, inshallah, benefit you that you can use as, you know, criteria and you can use inshallah to understand the principles of faith and aqidah and ibadah and the right of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala over his servants. And I cannot mention the examples that I have prepared because of we're running out of time. But uh, something very important. How, what is the criteria of shirk? Because people are really confused. They don't know what is shirk and what is not shirk and what is bid'ah. And sometimes they call a bid'ah shirk and they call it shirk bid'ah. And there must be, you know, alhamdulillah, our aqidah is very simple. One of the characteristics of Islam, of the aqidah of Islam, alhamdulillah, is simplicity. Islam is simple. When we talk about aqidah, you don't have to downgrade your language or upgrade it or observe the level of education of the audience. You don't have to do that. Just teach what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said. It will suit everyone. And it will strike the nature of every creature of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is one of the characteristics of aqidah. One of the features of aqidah really is simplicity. It's very simple. It's natural. So, the dabit of shirk. How do we know shirk? Any form of worship. First of all, if someone is committing something. Let's say that someone is, I think... I would rather favor the explanation and the elaboration over the questions, if you would allow me. Just 10 more minutes. Let's say that someone is invoking upon Allah through the Messenger of Allah, and saying, Oh Allah, I ask you by the Prophet, or by Sheikh Ali or Saeed or whatever, to grant me this or that or to give me this or that. What is this? Is this shirk or what? What is your judgment on this? Does anyone know the answer out of knowledge? Bid'ah. Okay, who believes it is shirk? Shirk. Okay, please. Do you have an answer? Why do you think it is shirk? Okay. So the brother is saying that dua is ibadah. And now he's doing the, the ibadah through someone else. So it is shirk. Those who said it's bid'ah, why you said it's bid'ah? What? 
Jazakallah khair. Well, we have to take two steps first before we give our ruling. The first step is first to determine that this is a real form of worship. All right? Like if someone is, uh, uh, let's say, talking to someone, you know, you can't call him, this is not ibadah. He's not, you know, first of all, you have to determine and agree that this thing is ibadah. Okay, like tawaf, for instance. How do we know this ibadah? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, وَطَهِّرْ بَيْتِيَ لِلطَّائِفِينَ وَقَالْ وَلِيَطَّوَّفُوا بِالْبَيْتِ الْعَتِيقِ So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made it very clear that tawaf, circling the Kaaba, is ibadah. That's the first thing. The second thing is to make sure that this form is ibadah is being paid for someone else other than Allah. The place of ibadah of tawaf is around the Kaaba, only around the Kaaba. وَلِيَطَّوَّفُوا بِالْبَيْتِ الْعَتِيقِ Purify my house, clean it, physically and spiritually. So they would make tawaf around al-bayt al-atiq. So if you pay this form of worship in the graveside, then this is first we proved that it's ibadah, and then second it's being paid somewhere else or to someone else, other than it was specified by Allah. So here for sure we say this is a form of shirk, definitely. But like the brother said, ibadah here, the dua is ibadah, definitely. When we invoke upon Allah, وَقَالَ رَبُّكُمْ أُدْعُونِي أَسْتَجِبْ لَكُمْ إِنَّ الَّذِينَ يَسْتَكْبِرُونَ He didn't say عن دعائي. He said عن عبادتي. So he called dua ibadah. So he used ibadah for dua. When Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said, that prayers or invocation is ibadah. So in this case, the man is still invoking upon Allah. He's asking Allah. So here, we first, the first step was we determined that dua is ibadah. How? Allah said, ud'uni. And the Prophet said, dua wal ibadah. Then that's the first step. The second step that we take is to prove that it was paid or given to someone else other than Allah, and it wasn't. However, it is bid'ah. Why? Because it would lead that individual later on to invoke upon the Prophet and call him directly. And this is what's happening nowadays. And I'm not saying this to uh, uh, you know, justify tawassul or anything. No, tawassul is bid'ah, muharrama, and it's definitely uh, going to lead to shirk. One day it will lead the individual to shirk because he would think that really he was answered because he was praying through the Prophet ﷺ or through that pious sheikh. So later he would say, well, then I will just call the sheikh himself or call the Prophet ﷺ. So it is bid'ah because that's not the way of the Prophet ﷺ in invoking upon Allah and calling upon Allah. And this is something very important because Muslims sometimes out of emotion, they say, well, this is kufr, this is shirk. And they call things which are, you know, bid'ah, shirk, and things which are shirk, they minimize it and make it bid'ah. So, first of all, the criteria of shirk, any form of worship that's been given or paid to anyone other than Allah is shirk. How do we know that? How do we realize that? Is first of all, we have to determine that this form is, is ibadah, and then we have to prove that this ibadah is being given to someone else other than Allah. That's how we judge it. Then, when do we consider the person to be a mushrik? It is not enough for the individual to commit a form of kufr or shirk to be called a mushrik. He must understand first 
that this form of ibadah or thing is shirk. You must present the evidences to him. You must present the, the truth to him in, a, in the best manner. And then we must make sure that he has no doubts in his heart. And there is no uh, misconceptions in his mind. And then after that, if he insists on doing the same thing, or paying this form of worship to other, other than Allah, to others beside Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then we can call him a mushrik. But first of all, we have to fulfill these two things. Make sure that the truth is being brought, presented to him. And then the second thing or step is to make sure that he has no more doubts about the evidences because they might believe in the evidence that we're using but they say, well, it doesn't mean that. You have to make it perfectly clear. And there are many evidences from the Quran and the Sunnah that would, you know, substantiate this understanding. For instance, you know, all of you, the story of the man who was uh, uh, feeling guilty of the sins that he committed and he told his children that, you know, when I... If I die, you know, burn me and, and scatter my, the, you know, the ashes or the dust of my funeral. Uh, uh, because Allah, if Allah was able to resurrect me, He will punish me. So really he questioned the ability of Allah to resurrect him after, not after he dies, but after really he's scattered away. He thought that the only way possible for Allah to resurrect a human being is if he is buried and his, you know, physical bones and bodies is, is there, then it's easier. Or that's the only possible way for Allah. So that's, uh, he committed really kufr. If you question the ability of Allah, this is a form of kufr. A great blasphemy. So on the day of judgment, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala asked him, he said, why did you do that or ask him to do that? He said, out of your fear. He was so fearful of Allah that he thought. So he was ignorant of that issue. Okay, but he had faith. He believed in the hereafter. He believed in the resurrection. And he believed that Allah is going to call him for account. He believed in the fire. He believed in everything. But out of ignorance. So if we make it very clear to those who worship graves, that this is a form of worship, and you cannot do this in any place other than Al-Kaaba. And if you do this, you will be a kafir in the best manners. And you convey the message in the best manners, in the best way. And then after that, if he has any evidence or any dalil or any statement by a scholar, you clarify it to him. Then after that, if he insists on doing that, you can definitely call him a mushrik. But before that, you cannot take that position unless you make sure. You can call the, the act, give a ruling on the act, say, well, he is committing shirk. He is committing kufr. He has said shirk or kufr, but you cannot really... Uh, uh, give the ruling that he is a, a real mushrik or a real kafir and this is something very uh, important and uh, just the time uh, I had many other examples and uh, issues and then the end of the hadith the Prophet ﷺ said again do you know what the right of the servants over Allah is now do we have a right on Allah is this mean possible that the creatures, the weak ones, have right on the Creator, the Almighty, Subhanahu Wa Taala? Um, answer. Yes. Okay. Those who say yes, please, you know, Yes. I mean, is it possible for us to have a right over Allah? No guessing. 
brothers, when it's aqidah, out of knowledge, no guessing. No multiple choice. No, we have no rights. Okay, the, we have to understand the meaning of right. The, here, Allah subhanahu wa didn't Allah promise in the Quran that those who believe and do good, they will be, you know, admitted to paradise and He has prepared gardens for them and rivers, etc. And that they will be rewarded. Didn't Allah say that? Didn't Allah promise that? Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, this is the promise of Allah. Allah does not fail in His promise. So our right... On Allah is because of what He has promised us. It is not an initial right. You know, we have, I mean, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, out of His grace and mercy, is accepting us amongst His righteous people. And out of, out of His grace and mercy, not because of our deeds, you know, that we, are, we deserve that, but it's out of His mercy and grace subhanahu wa ta'ala. But we say we have the right over Allah because He promised us, that those who believe and do good, they will go to Jannah. وَعْدَ اللَّهِ إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يُخْلِفُ الْمِيعَادِ That's the promise of Allah, and Allah does not fail in His promise. So, Allah. The right of Allah is to be worshipped without taking partners with Him, and our right over Allah, if we do so, if we fulfill His right, that inshallah, He will not punish us and we'll be admitted to Jannah. Asallallah Azza wa Jal bi Asma'il Husna Sifati Ula to make all of us amongst those who when they listen to the word of Allah, they follow the best of it. Sallallahu Sallam Barakaya. Jazakillah Khairan, the Shaykh Wajdi Al Ghazawi, Imam of King Fad Masjid in Mecca. There's a few minutes to go before the Doha prayers and lunch, and there's uh, one or two questions. Um, I suppose a quick summary of what the Sheikh was saying is when you ask what the rights of Allah, the rights of Allah are the proper understanding of la ilaha illallah, la sharika the declaration of that fact, the understanding and the belief of that fact with no doubts in your heart, and the acting upon that. And the best way to act upon that is the understanding of the second part of the Kalimatain with Muhammad Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa Understand that Muhammad is the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa And his sunnah, as Aisha radiallahu and her said, Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa was the walking Qur'an. So his sunnah is the way to perform our duty towards Allah, therefore performing the rights of Allah. Um, there's an announcement to make before we go to some of the questions. Um, can we please ask for either Dr. Jelani or Dr. Khan to identify themselves at reception? Jazakallah khairan. All the questions are related to the topic. Yes, yeah, yeah, okay. Right. Three taqra'a hadha hayna ma amal hadha min ajri shwaya sa'ab an aqra'a mikrofon. Astakullahuwa sahihullah. Okay, and uh, first question is. Is it permissible? Is it permissible to perform regular prayer behind an Imam who is a Sufi or a Shia, even if he is the most knowledgeable person in Quran, and can perform, uh, and can one perform uh, prayers behind a clear deviant, even though he may be the most knowledgeable in Quran? Oh, sorry. Say so, yeah. 
Okay, the question is, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Is it permissible to perform regular prayer behind an imam who is a Sufi or a Shia, even if he is the most knowledgeable in Qur'an, and can one perform one's prayers behind a clear deviant, even though he may be the most knowledgeable in Qur'an? Well, you know that the, the proper methodology of the people of Sunnah is that they pray. This is mentioned in the books of Aqidah. This is something very important. That we pray behind the righteous imams and the, the corrupt imams. However, when they mention corruption here, they mean fisk. You know, like the one who commits sins. Like if the imam, let's say, astaghfirullah, he smokes or he shaves his beard or he doesn't wear his thobe above the ankles, etc. These are sins. Or he listens to music. You know, these are sins. Okay? As long as his aqidah is sound, the people of Sunnah, because they want to establish unity in the community and not cause any form of separation, they pray behind him as long as he is the most knowledgeable in Quran. However, when it comes to aqidah, when... We say a Sufi, I want to make sure that the people understand now the Sufism. Because sometimes if the uh, imam wears, let's say, a green turban, they think he's a Sufi. Well, this is one of the signs of Sufis. Because they, they believe in Al-Khadr. You know, Al-Khadr was the, the man, and as it is an uh, authentic narration in Bukhari, the Prophet ﷺ mentioned that the reason that he was called al-Khadr, that he sat down in a rag and turned to green, so he was called al-Khadr. So, they believe in this uh, green color, that is the symbol of, uh, a symbolic thing for them, it's for, you know, uh, awliya and righteous people, etc. So that's one of their signs, but it doesn't necessarily mean that anyone who wears green turban or green thobe or green anything is a Sufi. Or sometimes people out of ignorance, they use the dhikr beans. They don't know. They think, you know, and, and some of the scholars, they sometimes support it and justify it. So, but it's the sign of Sufis. Some, some of them, they wear it around their neck. This is also one of the ways of the Sufis. But doesn't necessarily mean that he's a Sufi. So I, I hope that the brother understand really that the imam is a Sufi. Like he believes in the principles of Sufism. And I mentioned the criteria that the source of knowledge is the other sources I mentioned, etc. If that's the case, no, we can't pray behind it because they commit shirk, clear shirk. So his salah is not accepted in the first place. So how can we pray behind him? So is the Shia. And sometimes people, they get very upset. You know, I've experienced this when you... Uh, I, my personal understanding and, and belief uh, regarding the Shia, I believe that they're not Muslims, period. All of them. And this is not out of extremism or, fanat you know, I'm not a fanatic or anything, but we fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Anyone who believes that the Qur'an is not complete, anyone who curses the companions and curses Aisha and questions her dignity, and anyone <clears throat> who believes that the imams are infallible, and anyone who believes in the madness of Shia is not a Muslim. It's clear. And what in, um, let me tell you, this is uh, maybe very interesting. What, in one of the lectures, one of the people got very upset with me. And he stood up and he said, how come you, you know, you said this. He said, I'm a Shi'i, but I don't believe in this. I said, okay, you, you, are you a Shi'i? Yes, I'm a Shi'i. I said, do you believe the Quran is complete? He said, yes. He said, do you love all the companions without any exception? He said, yes, I love all of them. 
So do you love Aisha radiallahu anha? Do, do you believe that she's the mother of the believers? And her blood and her reputation is sacred. And do you believe in this? And he said, yes. I said, well, why are you upset? You're not a Shi'i. You know, <laughs> just to be raised in a, in a Shi'i community, you know, we're not called, no, that's why we have to specify. If you believe in this and that, if you believe, well, yes, some of the companions, really, they turned away after the Prophet or Abu Bakr, really. And we have to understand, brothers, so you won't be ill-advised. Okay, that Shi'ism went through three stages. And the first stage was, I don't want to say accepted by the scholars, but it wasn't as harmful as the other two. Alright? The first phase of Shia was those who believed that Ali really deserved to be the third Khalifa and Uthman is the fourth with, you know, the great love and respect to all of them. That's the first Shia. So that's the Shia in the linguistic meaning. Shia'atul Rajul, yani Ansaru. Those are supporters. That's the Shia. If you, like let's say, you're with me now, going out, doing something, you're my Shia. That's, you know, that's the first phase. The second phase developed, because that's how shaitan gets to people. He doesn't tell you commit adultery right away. You know, but he justifies for you to sit with the women on your own to give a da'wah maybe. That's the first tip. And then later, when you, uh, uh, you know, sit with her in privacy, that would lead you to something else. That's why Allah said, do not approach zina. And He did not say, do not commit zina. Because there are steps that people take before they commit any crime or any sin. So that was the first tip. They just favored Ali over Uthman. They said, well, really he... Well, because of his closeness and, and relative, you know, uh, he was very close to the Prophet. He's the, the you know, the husband of his uh, daughter, and he's the first uh, one amongst the youth who embraced Islam, etc. So he really, he should have been the third, not the fourth. This then developed, and they started cursing Uthman. They said, yeah, well, yeah, he deserved the real Uthman is corrupt, and they started cursing Uthman. And then the third phase that developed, really, they started calling Ali Ilah and, you know, cursing all the companions, etc. So, that's, um, I mentioned this because sometimes you would find statements by Dhabi and other scholars. They would say, well, uh, scholar X, kana uh, And you might find one of the narrators of Al-Bukhari in his biography that he was a Shi'i. That doesn't mean the Shia who believe in, in this, all these forms of deviations. You have to be aware of this fact. Okay? It means that really he believed that Ali should have been the third Khalifa. And really with all due love and respect to Uthman, and he would love Uthman and love the rest of the companions. That's the meaning of the early Tashayyur, and that's the meaning of those who really believe. But they never cursed. If he curses one of the companions, then... His adala is broken and we can't take even, you know, his narration. If he curses Abu Bakr and Umar and the companions and claim they're the kuffar. So, I, it took me too long to answer the question because I like to establish some certain foundations. It's not just no, yes, no, you can't pray. Yes, we pray behind those, the sinners, if they know Quran, but the Shi'is, the Sufis, if they're real Shi'is and real Sufis, we should not pray behind them and we should do our best to replace them, or if not possible, if that's going to lead to fitna or corruption, or anything that is more harmful, just find another message.
Y as in Yankee, A as in Alpha, I never worked for the, for the airline, but, uh, you know, uh, W as in Washington, A as in Alpha again, J as in Joan, and then D as in Dor, and then I as in India, at Muslim, M-U-S-L-I-M, dot com. Jazakallah khairan to the Sheikh for his email address. Inshallah, you'll find it very useful.